Well, good morning. Once again, some of you guys weren't here when we started service, so I'll just go ahead and say good morning again. That no Sunday school hour got you. <clears throat> well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. This is where the Lord has us this morning. Well, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion part three. And our focus is going to be in verses 39 and 43, but let me go ahead and just read this entire section so that we can have a full context of what we're looking at here. So Luke 23, starting in verse 26, says this, and as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting it for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore the breasts that never, and never, that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, with the ruler, and the, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, he, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So like I said, we're in part three of the crucifixion account. And if you haven't been with us for the past couple weeks, I really encourage you to go back and listen to those messages by Pastor Sam. And we've seen throughout this account how Jesus was led to the cross, how we've seen people who hated him, who were mocking him, the Jewish leaders falsely accused him to get him there in the first place. They're trying to um, kill him because he is possibly gonna take away their power. They don't see him as the Messiah. They see him as a hindrance to their power. Pilate, trying to please Rome, trying to appease the Jews, not wanting to lose his position of power, has allowed this false trial to take place and this false accusations to take place and now his crucifixion has come. We see there's multitudes following, many who are curious, many who did not see him as the Messiah that they wanted. They had wrong expectations. They thought Jesus was supposed to be this triumphal Messiah who overthrows Rome. And we see all these mockers last week, Sam pointed out that all the ones who mocked Jesus and why and, and the mercy of Christ in the face of those mocking. But today we're gonna to zero in on the two criminals, the two that were being crucified alongside of him. And in order for us to understand the point of this passage, we have to understand who are the criminals. We don't know. We don't know a whole lot about them. There's not much written about them, but what is written does give us a lot that we can conclude. And so if we turn to Matthew 27, 38, and 44, jump over there in your Bibles with me, and we're also gonna look at Mark 15, 27, and 32. There's a few things that we can pull out as we look at these accounts. Matthew 27, verse 38, if I find it here, it says, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And if you jump over to verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, if you jump over to Mark 15, 
we'll see something similar. Verse 27 shows us here. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And then if you jump down to verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So what can we learn from this passage in these parallel accounts? Well, first, they were more than robbers. They were more than just robbers. The original Greek word for robber is lestes, which can be translated robber, criminal, or insurrectionist. Now, it's important to note that robbers were not normally punished by crucifixion. If you were simply caught stealing something, crucifixion is not the punishment that you would receive. Crucifixion was set aside for those that were trying to overthrow Rome, for those that murdered, for those that did much higher <clears throat> crimes. And so our assumption is that these two criminals were not your average criminal, but part of a Jewish sect known as the Zealots. In the book, 12 Ordinary Men, written by John MacArthur about the 12 disciples, he speaks about one of the zealots, which was Simon the Zealot. And he says, the zealots were hoping for a Messiah that would lead them in overthrowing the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel to its Solomonic glory, the time of Solomon when everything was peace and good. They were red-hot patriots, ready to die in an instant for what they believed in. Zealots were extremists who often used violence. See, these were men who were sold out for Israel. In their mind, they were trying to overthrow Rome in the name of the Lord, which gives us a, a better picture of why they were crucified along with Jesus. The zealots, they were known as the Sicarii or dagger men. They would often conceal curved daggers in the folds of their robes and sneak up on Roman soldiers and politicians and stab them in the back. The zealots were also known to burn or destroy Roman targets in Judea, then retreat to the Galilean countryside to hide. And it's also thought that Barabbas, the one that Pilate put before the Jews to release, was also one of these zealots. And this may explain why Pilate put these two criminals on the right and the left of Jesus. This is further mocking of Christ. This is how Pilate, this is how the Jews viewed Jesus. Remember what the accusations were. He's saying that he's a king. He's the son of God. To the Jews, this was blasphemy. To Pilate, this would be threatening to, to Rome. And these two criminals were those same type of men. As we look into just the details of what this word means. They were robbers, but they were more than robbers. They were insurrectionists. They were ones trying to overthrow Rome. They, were, they probably were some of these dagger men who had murdered some Roman soldiers. This is why they would have deserved a crucifixion, a death at the hands of the crucifixion. And as we read in our passage, which we'll get there in a few minutes, but remember the second criminal says, we deserve this. We're on the cross because we deserve this which means that he knew that they had done some things to deserve this, which allows us to indicate that they were more than just your ordinary robbers. But once again, this is further mocking of Christ. Remember, put on the right hand and on the left, that you put on the right and the left of a, a king, those who were his most loyal subjects, that they were rubbing it in the face of Christ and mocking him. The second thing that we need to look at when it comes to understanding the criminals that we read in those other two passages, I want you to notice that they were both mocking Christ at first. It's easy to look at this passage and see that one criminal was mocking and the other one isn't. But when all this began, when they were first being crucified, when they were hanging on the cross, when we look at the other synoptics, the other accounts, they were both reviling him. They were both mocking him. We must understand that they were equally mocking Jesus and Jesus was not the savior that either of them wanted. Remember, remember, if we can understand who they were, if we can understand they were zealots and insurrectionists, they would have been the ones that more than any would want the Messiah to be this conquering king. 
one that would overthrow the government, one that would bring about an earthly kingdom, would bring about peace by the way of war. And this is not who Christ is. This is not what Christ came to do. So they were mocking him. They were reviling him. And I want us to see, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you away the main point of today's passage. The main point of today's passage is that God is sovereign in salvation for the spiritually dead. God is sovereign in salvation for the spiritually dead. This criminal that we see his salvation today was not a good man and was not one who wanted Christ. Remember, he was reviling just like the other criminal. God is the initiator. God is savior and perfecter of our faith. He does it all from beginning to end. And we'll see that today. And there's no greater example of this than in the criminal's salvation. There's no greater example than in this criminal's salvation. So let's look at criminal number one. He represents the spiritually dead. Criminal number one, spiritually dead. And look at how it starts. He began to rail at him. Stop there. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Now this is more than what that word shows. If we look at the original Greek word here, the original word is blasphemeo, which means to speak evil against, to blaspheme, use abusive language about God. Luke uses this original word on purpose. He uses this language to bring the reader's attention to who Christ was. This is further evidence that Christ is God, that Christ is the Messiah, that he is the one true God. He's not just railing against another human. He's not just throwing mean words towards someone who is equal to him. He is blaspheming God himself. That's what criminal number one is doing. This criminal is blaspheming against God himself. And Leviticus 24, 16 reminds us of what should happen to those that would blaspheme the name of the Lord. It says in Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. The irony in this passage is astonishing, isn't it? Here we see this religious zealot sold out for God that he is willing to try to overthrow Rome. He's so sold out for God that he would try to, to physically overthrow Rome. Yet he finds himself blaspheming the one true God who is, which is punishable by death according to God and he is doing it while he is being crucified. The most gruesome death one could ever endure. The criminal is getting exactly what he deserves from both man and God. He's rejecting the very one who has the authority to save him. The one that he was doing all this insurrectionist work for, God, not the God of the Bible, but the God that he had in his own mind, the Messiah that he had in his own mind. And, and now he finds himself getting the punishment he deserves in crucifixion while blaspheming the one true God that the Lord says is punishable by death. He's getting exactly what he should get. So ironic. But we have to understand this is how the Lord, the Lord works. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25 reminds us of this when it comes to governments and how the Lord uses them. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 25 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This scripture is explaining this very moment. This criminal is reviling, but Christ says nothing. This criminal was taking matters into his own hands in a way that God never told us to. He was trying to, to overthrow the government. He was trying to take down the emperor, and that was never what God said to do. His heart may have been in the right place in some ways, but it was sinful in his actions and in his pride. He was blind. And Christ, the Lord, is our example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You notice in our passage, Christ never says anything back. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ was entrusting himself to God. He was not reviling in return. But what blindness by the criminal. What pride. He is the very picture of spiritual blindness. And we shouldn't look at this criminal as someone that we cannot relate to because this is us as well. We are all spiritually blind without God. We're all spiritually blind unless God himself opens our eyes to the truth of his word. Psalm 14, one through three, this is gonna sound like a familiar passage because Romans three ten through 12 also says this, but Psalm 14, one through three says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside, together have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That probably sounds familiar because Romans 3, 10 through 12 quotes this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You know what the original Greek word for no one means? No one. <laughs> no one does good. No one seeks for God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 reminds us that, and he's speaking to Christians, but he's reminding them of their state before Christ opened their eyes. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. In which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work at the, in the sons of disobedience. Speaking of Satan. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is what this criminal deserves. His eyes are blind to who Christ truly is. He is blinded by his pride, he is blinded in his own sin. He does not want God. He wants God on his own terms. And he is by nature children of wrath. He deserves the wrath of God, which he is receiving in this moment on the cross. And that is true for every single one of us. We are born in our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. Unless God intervenes, this is who we are. Isaiah 42, five through nine says it this way. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations 
to open the eyes that are blind. Did you see that? The Lord has to open the eyes, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And this criminal is blind. He cannot see what he is doing. The blindness of pride goes deep. And none of us can run away from it. That is true for all of us. But let's move to the next part of this verse. So he starts by railing at, at the Lord. And then he says, are you not the Christ? Stop there. Are you not the Christ? What is he saying? Is he asking a question? Is he genuinely curious? No. Are you not the Messiah? He's reviling. He's railing at Christ just like all the rest of the mockers were. In his mind, the Messiah was to come and set, set up the kingdom, to overthrow the government. He's trying to mock him. That's what he's doing. Going back to Matthew 27, 38 through 44, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but here's what it says there. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, waging or wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So this helps us understand what he's saying about, aren't you the son of God? Are you not the Christ? Are you not the Messiah? The robber's statement has the same vitriol of all the other mockers. Weren't you going to tear down the temple in three days and rebuild it? Didn't you say that? What happened? Temple's still standing, and you're hanging here with us. Or if you remember back in Luke 19, just a few days before this, didn't we praise you? Didn't we praise God for you? Didn't we call you a king as you rode in on the colt and now you're dying? You're not the Messiah that, we said, that you said you were. You're not the king that the, the, the word promises. You're not the, the triumphant king that we hoped you were. Didn't we praise you? And now look at you. Look at you. Hanging on a cross, dying with us. And Jesus had already addressed this back in Luke 19, 42, because if you remember back when he rides in on the colt and all of them are praising his name, he says, he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says in verse 42 of Luke 19, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He was blind. They were all blind. And they are mocking him because he is not the God that they wanted. He is not the Messiah that they wanted. Didn't you say you're the son of God? Didn't you say you could save people? Didn't you do miracles? Didn't you open the eyes to the blind? Didn't you feed 5,000 with some fish and bread? Like, didn't you calm the storm? What are you doing? And now look at you. Here you are. You're not God. You're not the Christ. That's what's underneath that question. Are you not the Christ? He's not sincere in his taunting. There's disdain in his voice. There's sarcasm in that question. But you have to think that he must have been thinking in the back of his mind, I did see this dude do some miracles. So he throws in this little quick, save yourself and us. Just in case. 
at the end of all this, you kick out at the last minute here and do one of these miracles again, hey, go ahead and get us too. I'm going to keep mocking you, but in case I was wrong, remember, we were trying to overthrow the gut. We were trying to do what you, we think you came to do, so don't forget about us. But isn't that how we think too? I want to do everything that I want to do. I don't really believe God is who he says he is, but just in case. I mean, God, he's not going to send us to hell, right? He's a loving God, right? I'm a pretty good person. At the end of it all, he'll, he'll probably still take us to heaven, right? No. No, he won't. We deserve the wrath of God because of our spiritual blindness. We deserve it. This criminal deserves exactly what he's getting right now. And essentially what all the mockers were saying is prove yourself. Prove yourself. Not because they believed, but because they didn't think that he could. He can't save himself. They're all asserting that Christ can't save himself. But they missed the point entirely. It's not that he couldn't. It's that he wouldn't. Christ wouldn't save himself. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the God man. Psalm 46, 6 that we read this morning. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. Jesus was not powerless. At any moment, Jesus could have called down a legion of angels to destroy everyone who was mocking him. So why didn't he? Christ restrained his power. He restrained himself because he was fulfilling the covenant of redemption. There's a, there is a covenant called the covenant of, of redemption. Not many of us have heard of this one, but it, it is a covenant that was made between the Godhead before the world was ever created. This is sort of like the doctrine of the Trinity. You never see the word Trinity in Scripture, but the evidence of the Trinity is everywhere. The same thing with the covenant of redemption. We don't see in black and white the covenant of redemption, but we see the evidences of this everywhere in Scripture. This is a covenant made between God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit before the world was ever created. The redemptive plan of Christ was always the plan. There was no plan B. There was no plan C. There was no being caught off guard. There was no wondering what was going to happen with these humans and now we need to come and deal with it and save them. No, this was always the plan. Christ was always the plan. There was no plan B. John 17, 1 through 5, we see the evidence of this covenant when Jesus, praying to the Father, says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This covenant has always been there. And God is not a God who breaks his covenants. Jesus was holding back. He was restraining himself on purpose. This is before sin. This is before the heavens were created. This is before Satan was even created. This plan was set before the heavens and earth were created, and if you ever wanted to understand the problem of evil, you don't have to look much further than the cross. We cannot merely say that God allows evil to exist. We can't say that. As if it took God by surprise, and now he just controls it. That's not true. If we understand the covenant of redemption, God always knew this was going to be the plan. Although it is right to say that God is not evil himself and he does hate evil, James 1, 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So we can't see that God, we can say that God is not evil and he does not love evil, he does not even want evil, he does hate evil, yet what we should say 
And what is true is that God ordains evil and always uses evil for his good plan. That's what we have to say. Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God is sovereign over all things, both evil and good. God never breaks his covenants. And I'm thankful for that truth. I'm thankful for that truth. We have to have an eternal perspective. This life is not the end. This life is but a blip on the radar. We break covenants all the time. But Christ stays on the cross for his glory and for the salvation of those who would believe in him. I'm thankful that God does not break his covenants. I'm thankful that Christ withstood the cross. I'm thankful that he did not destroy everyone there as they would deserve, but that he was that perfect lamb and he took all sin on the cross, including God's wrath, and paid the penalty for it. Now, criminal number two is a clear understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. Criminal number two gives us the clear understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. We see the full process of salvation in the criminal's conversion. At first we see the the criminal, he, he confronts his tragic condition. In verses 40 through 41a, at some point as he hung on the cross, He was reviling along with the other criminal. He was mocking along with the other criminal. And somewhere along that journey, as he hung there, God opened his eyes. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes and revealed to him who Christ truly was. And hanging there in his shame, he began to realize that Christ is Lord. And not only did he stop mocking, but he couldn't listen to the mocking any longer. He had to rebuke the other criminal. But the other, in verse 40, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? This had to have been baffling to the other criminal. Like, wait a second, we were, we were a tag team here. We were both saying all the same stuff and you were with me about five minutes ago. What happened? Do you not fear God? This is the first indicator of a, of a redeemed mind is a right fear of God. This is the first indicator. His eyes were open to the fear of the Lord. He no longer feared death, but now he feared the one in charge of both life and death. Luke 12, four through five reminds us, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can, they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The criminal right, right now in this moment is no longer afraid of death. He's, he's not even focused on the pain of his punishment. But he's focused on the fear of the Lord. Do you not fear God? Salvation always begins with the right understanding of the fear of the Lord. This is how you know if you truly are saved. Do you fear God? Do you see God rightly? Are your eyes open to the truth of who God is and the the reality of the wrath we deserve? Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Remember, we are blind in our sin. We've, We've exhausted that with criminal number one. But his eyes are opened in that moment. Somewhere in that journey, somewhere in those moments, the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to the truth of who Christ is. You can have knowledge and desire for the things of God and not truly be saved. One of the scariest passages in all of Scripture is Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but this puts a pit in my stomach every time I read it. Because this doesn't mean, this isn't talking about those who openly reject the Lord. These are people who claim to be Christians. This undoubtedly in a room this size, <clears throat> this size with people, the amount of people in here, that this is probably talking about some of you. This is a culture of easy believism that we live in right now in America. That you can get fired up in one emotional event and pray some sort of prayer that someone tells you to pray and that means you're all good. It doesn't mean that. If there's not a genuine fear of the Lord and understanding of who he is, you may not be saved. God is not your buddy. He doesn't, he doesn't, he ain't got you, as I hear people say all the time. God's got my back. Really? Are you sure? He's not cool with all your little mistakes and your little sins. God is not mocked by empty prayers and Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. You have to come to the end of yourself, realizing the wrath you genuinely deserve. He is a holy God that justly punishes those who are sinful. And every sin counts. That's why we need Christ. We need salvation. Otherwise, we have no chance that we will be those ones who are cast into hell and don't just rest in your claiming to know Jesus. Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you have a genuine fear of the Lord? Do you understand the wrath that you deserve? This criminal goes on and he acknowledges his own sinfulness in verse 41. So the next progression of salvation is first to acknowledge who God is and the wrath that we deserve and the natural response to that is that you acknowledge your own sin. And that's what we see here with him. After he rebukes, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Are you mocking God? Do you not fear God? Here we are under the same condemnation, hanging on a cross, but we deserve it. We sinned. We murdered. We did something that deserves this. We deserve the wrath of God, is what he's saying. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The thief understood the wrath that he deserved for both his crimes and for his sin. He got it. James 4, 4 through 10 reminds us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That word enmity means direct opposition. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Don't take your sin lightly. When we understand the wrath that we deserve before a holy God, then there's only one response. That's humility and repentance. That's the second marker for a truly saved person. Is first that you understand the fear of the Lord and number two, that you respond in humility and repentance. There is no other response to a holy God. We cannot take this lightly. There is too much at stake. God's glory is at stake and your salvation is at stake. And do not get it twisted. The Lord is just in punishing the wicked. He is just. And then we see the, the 
criminal here, he goes on and he acknowledges that Jesus is the Savior and he repents in verses 41 through 42. Look what he says at the end of 41. But this man has done nothing wrong. Acknowledging the sinlessness or the sin, yeah, the sinlessness of Christ. He is not sinful. He committed no crimes and he is perfect and good and holy. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's a lot loaded into these statements. He recognized that Christ was holy. He was not just acknowledging that Christ had not committed a crime, but he recognized his sinlessness at the same time. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, knowing that you, were not, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This criminal was acknowledging who Christ was, sinless, the sinless lamb of God, the Messiah. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. He recognized that Jesus is the one true king. Look again at what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood Christ is the king. He is the Messiah. He does have a kingdom that, that goes beyond this earth. His eyes were open to the truth of who Christ is. I know who you are now, Christ. You are the Lord of glory. Remember me. The criminal was no longer concerned about his earthly death. He cared way more about his spiritual life. Because remember, in this process, he's being crucified. He was about to die. He knew that. And we know that he was gonna die within this same day. But God has prepared a kingdom for you and when you enter the kingdom, remember me. This is what he's saying. You are king. He believed that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. He acknowledged that the Lord would one day establish his kingdom, which was promised in the covenants God made with Abraham and David and reiterated repeat, repeatedly with the prophets. He got it. It all came to mind. Remember me was a plea for mercy from the king. Have mercy on me is what he's saying. Jesus, have mercy. I know I don't deserve it. I haven't done anything. I've literally been sitting here mocking you and reviling you and blaspheming you. But now I see. Have mercy. We see that humility, that repentance. It reminds us of a similar story with the blind beggar in Luke 18, 35 through 43. He had the same attitude. In 35 through 43, it says, as he drew near to Jericho, speaking of Jesus, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, uh, front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, do you want me to, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when he saw it, gave praise to God. The same type of cry as the criminal on the cross. Lord, remember me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, save me. Romans 10, 13 reminds us, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This type of call. It doesn't mean just because you say, Lord, that that's what you mean, but when you have this heart, when you see God's character, when you understand his wrath, when you understand who he is, and you see your sin for what it is and the wrath that you deserve, and you humble yourself and you repent, this is the type of cry that you cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, remember me. That's the cry of a, of a saved sinner. 
There is no other cry. There is no other calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. It's when you fully humble yourself before a holy God. And then look at Christ's comforting response in verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Christ starts with the word truly. This statement gives emphasis to what he's about to say, saying, listen, what I'm about to say is very important. You're not going to believe this, so let me draw you in with this statement, truly. Christ's response goes beyond the criminal's request. Today you will be with me in paradise. That word for paradise is, also means heaven. Today. This is immediate entrance into heaven. Now this would have meant a lot to this Jewish zealot because there was a Jewish doctrine that, that held that the dead would go to Sheol that this was a place of death and darkness, a, a delay in blessing. The thinking was that you would go, you would die, you would be in the place of death, and at some point, when Christ returned, the Messiah came, you might be taken to heaven. And Jesus breaks through that doctrine and says, today, there is no waiting period, there is no Sheol for you, there is none of that, there is today you enter into heaven. And that would have meant a lot to this criminal as well because he fully understood he was dying this is his last day on earth. And Jesus says, truly I say to you today. And this breaks through a lot of false doctrine that we have in our world around us. There's some false doctrine today about this idea of a soul sleep. Anybody ever heard of that one? This says that when we die, we fall asleep for centuries and centuries, and then at some point in a future date, we will wake up and go to heaven. That is not true. It's an immediacy. When we die, there's an immediate destination. For those who are in Christ, that immediate destination is heaven. For those who are not in Christ, that immediate destination is hell. There is no waiting period. There is no purgatory, as the Roman Catholics would teach, which is also a false doctrine, that persons who are in purgatory, whose sins in this world have not been adequately punished, will go there and work that out until eventually they earn their way into heaven. That is not true. There is no other chances. When death happens, you're either saved by grace through Christ alone or you spend eternity living out the wrath that you deserve in a place called hell. There is no works righteousness. This criminal story shows us this. There is no works righteousness. You cannot earn your way into heaven. He's literally reviling and blaspheming God and moments later, he repents because God opens his eyes and God saves him. There is no works here. There's no earning your way into heaven. The criminal had zero ability to work anything out. His deeds couldn't save him. His baptism couldn't save him. He didn't display some sort of second baptism by the Holy Spirit. He didn't start speaking in tongues. He didn't start doing any of this stuff that we're told. He believed in Christ and he was saved by Christ alone, through faith alone. That was it. He had no opportunity to do any of these things. But he was saved because of his belief in Christ. Imagine the astonishment when, when Christ says that to him. Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. He was about to die at any moment, yet what peace he must have felt to know that he was to wake up in heaven. That this momentary pain that he, was, that he was feeling in his death was about to be over. And he was gonna get a body of glory in heaven with Christ, the King. What hope, what comfort. Romans 10, nine through 10 says, but because if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and, the, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's what happened for this criminal on this cross, in this moment. His eyes were opened to the wrath of God. The fear of the Lord came upon him and he understood the wrath that he deserved, that his sin deserved. And his response to that sin was repentance, humility, 
asking for the Lord to forgive them and Christ in his mercy saves them. And because of that, he becomes one of God's children through Christ and he gets to experience heaven. This gives us the understanding that God is sovereign in salvation. That this is the gospel. As we conclude, I want us to just think through this. Is this the gospel that you believe? Do you have a true fear of the Lord? Do you understand the reality of your sin? Do you understand that God is just in punishing that sin and do you humble yourself before a holy God repenting of that sin and pleading and begging for mercy and trusting that Jesus is Lord and in his mercy he will save those who repent through Christ alone and faith alone. And for those who repent, live for him. We become slaves to Christ, a slave to righteousness. We conform our whole lives to the lordship of Christ until the day that we get to enter into heaven and see him truly in the way that, that he deserves. Is that the gospel that you've believed? Or is there a different form? Is there something else? And let me remind you, don't trust those things. There will be some who claim Christ that the Father will say, I never knew you because you didn't believe in the one true Christ. Do you enjoy the same peace as the thief on the cross? Do you see Christ as a Lord of glory? That's what I want you to contemplate today. My hope and my prayer is that that is not true, that today would be the day that it becomes true, that you see it rightly and you put your faith in Christ and for those who are in Christ, I pray that this is a day of rejoicing. Today we get to take the Lord's Supper together. And after I pray, I'm gonna give us some instructions. But today is a day of remembering that. The point of these tables is to remember the peace that we have in Christ. And it's a time of worship and rejoicing. So let's pray.